0: Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis 9, if you're using one of the few Bibles, that's page 6, Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, follow along as I read verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave the green plants, gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And as for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, teem on the earth and multiply in it. And God gives us ears to hear his word. One of the things I personally find most fascinating about the human race is all the things that we share in common. We're so different in so many ways. We speak different languages, we have different skin colors, we eat different foods, we come from radically different cultures. Some of our ancestors lived in teepees, others in igloos, others in caves, others in castles. We're so diverse in so many ways. And yet, nonetheless, there are many things that we all share in common. Consider, for example, the way in which all people on this planet view murder as morally wrong. This is undeniable. You look at the laws of the ancient Babylonians, modern Norwegians, the ancient Cherokee, modern day Chinese. There's remarkable agreement here. For some reason, humans from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation view it as morally wrong to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. Now, immediately, some of you might think of something like the Holocaust. Didn't the Nazis murder six million Jews in the Holocaust without hesitation? Doesn't that disprove this idea that everybody thinks murder is wrong? Well, in response to that, I'd say two things. First, horrible events like the Holocaust, they are the exception that proves the rule. Uh, The reason why they shock us is because we know that this is not the way life is supposed to be. We know that that is wicked. But more than that... And you'll have to dig into this a little bit to verify that what I'm telling you is true. The only reason the Holocaust worked is because the Nazis succeeded in defining Jews as non-persons. Again, look into this yourself. The Nazis defined Jews as subhuman, as less than human, and therefore killing them was not murder. It would be comparable to getting rid of cockroaches. But the Nazis would have been quick to say that killing an innocent German was murder and that murder was wrong. Does that make sense? So, I stand by this basic contention that people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, we for some reason believe universally that murder is morally wrong. Now, why is this? Why, despite all our cultural and language and skin color and ethnic differences, why are we agreed on this point? Well, it's certainly not because we live in this atheistic, materialistic, accidental universe. You know, you think about it, if that were the case, murder would be a good thing. Murder would be part of survival of the fittest. Uh, Just like we get of bothersome rats, getting rid of bothersome people would be a good thing if this were an atheistic evolutionary universe. But that's not how things are. No, the reality is the reason we all find murder wrong and evil is because we're all made in the image of God. We all have God's moral law written on our hearts, and since God hates murder, we know in our hearts that murder is wrong. And even though we don't always do what we know we should do, at least we know deep down that we shouldn't have murder. Well, it's this concept of murder, of intentionally taking innocent life and the prescribed punishment for that, uh, that we're going to be considering this morning in this little mini-series on Noah's Flood. What is murder? Why is murder wrong? What are some of the ways whereby we murder? And what do murderers deserve? These and other questions are going to be considered today in this sermon. Now, just to quickly remind you of the context, we're in a little mini-series within a larger series. The larger series is the book of Genesis. And again, I'm not so sure how far we're going to go. I don't intend to do the entire book, um, but maybe chapter 15-20 is where we'll conclude with Genesis. But within Genesis, we have this account of Noah and the flood. And this is an account that's of such enormous value, such practical value for today, that we're spending at least four and maybe more sermons on it. In this little mini-series, we're talking about the meaning of Noah's flood, uh, what the flood teaches us about the character of God, some of the scientific evidences for the flood, the implications of the flood for today, and something very, very important, what's called the Noahic Covenant. And Lord willing, we're going to talk about the covenant next week. Three weeks ago, we overviewed this entire account. We looked at chapters 6 through 9, and we noticed the way in which in a matter of hours or maybe days, God killed the vast majority of humans on this planet by drowning them saving only Noah and his family. And like we said two weeks ago, Noah's flood is the second most extensive expression of God's judgment in human history, second only to what's to take place at Jesus' return. Then two weeks ago, we discussed the global scope of the flood. Noah's flood was not this little local thing, limited to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. No, the waters really did cover the entire earth. And we looked two weeks ago at some of the biblical and scientific evidence for that, And we talk about why it's important to maintain a global flood, uh, not least because of the promises God makes in the Noahic Covenant. Well, today we're going to look at the first laws God gives after the flood. After the human race has been purified, after the earth has been cleansed, what are the very first laws binding on all of humanity? Not surprisingly, they pertain to this crime of murder and the punishment for murder, the death penalty. But before we talk about murder and the death penalty, I want you to know something fascinating with me. And this is really too important to skip over. But consider with me from Genesis 9 here how Noah is a second Adam. We see that in verse 1 and verse 7, that Noah is a second Adam. Now look at verse 1. We read this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now picture the scene with me. The ark is resting on Mount Ararat. Noah and his family are the only people on the planet at this time. And what does God tell them? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Have we encountered that type of thinking before? If you jump down to verse 7, we see the same idea again. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Whether you realize it or not, that language is the identical language that was used back in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve. Listen to, Adam and Eve. Uh, listen to what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now what was God calling Adam and Eve to do? Have kids and have lots of kids. But not just have kids. Clearly raise them up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. Continue to do that until this entire planet is filled with godly worshipers, with disciples. That was the original commission given to Adam and Eve. Now, that same commission is given here to Noah and his sons. Fill the earth with godly worshipers. And again, realize Noah and his family are the only people on this planet. So what you need to see them as is almost like Adam reboot. He's a second Adam. Perhaps Noah and his family will succeed here, whereas Adam and Eve failed. Now, interestingly, as we move throughout the Bible, we see this command repeated again and again and again. What in the world is going on here? For example, in Genesis thirty-five, eleven, God says this to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. In Exodus 1, 7, we read this, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In Jeremiah 23, 3, this is speaking of a future day, we read this, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they will be fruitful and multiply. Now, what on earth is going on here? Why is this original commission repeated with Adam, with Noah, with the Patriarchs, with Israel? What is going on? Well, here's what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see all of these different phases and stages in the plan of God is like Adam reboot or Adam take two, Adam take three, Adam take four. God gives Adam this commission. Fill the planet with godly worshipers. He's tempted by the devil and he fails. God gives the same commission to Noah. He's tempted by the devil and fails. He gives this commission to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Again, they're all tempted by the devil and they fail. He gives this to the entire nation of Israel, and they really failed. All of these individuals, they're not strong enough, they're not godly enough to defeat the devil and to fill this earth with godly worshipers. So this cycle of God calling second Adams, third Adams, fourth Adams, it continues until in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And it's fascinating that in the New Testament, one of the titles given to Jesus is the last Adam. Remember hearing that? For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, we read this. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And clearly in context, it's contrasting Adam, Adam, with Jesus, the last Adam. And the idea is that Jesus is finally going to get the job done. Where Adam failed, where Noah failed, where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Hezekiah, where they all failed, Jesus is fully obedient to the Father. He defeats Satan, and he's going to fill this planet with godly worshipers of Jehovah. And here's the most amazing thing. How does Jesus get this done? It's through his death and his resurrection. Through dying and through rising again. Again, That's how Jesus gets done the commission that Adam was called to do but failed to do. By perfectly obeying, Jesus perfectly reflects God's character. He is the image of the invisible God. To see him is to see the Father. He's obedient, whereas Adam fell eating a piece of fruit. Jesus is obedient even unto the point of death. By rising again from the dead, Jesus is endowed with all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. And get this now, in this age, what is Jesus doing? He's calling out a church made up of the redeemed from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. He's going to do that until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And the the, uh, the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. And here's the most amazing thing. We get to participate in that through evangelism and global missions. Jesus is being fruitful and multiplying by calling out this church made up the redeemed from every nation on the planet. A mixed multitude that no one can number. Isn't that amazing? So don't miss this little detail. We're going to talk largely about the death penalty and murder. But don't miss that Noah is a second Adam. And he's setting up a pattern that's ultimately going to find its climax in Jesus. Well, keeping all of that in mind, let's turn now to our main topic for this morning, murder and the death penalty. And from these verses, I want you to notice first, how oh, the Lord forbids murder and prescribes the death penalty. We're going to see this in verses 2 through 6, How oh, the Lord forbids murder and prescribes the death penalty. Now, jump down, if you would, to verse 5. There we read this. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, as you can clearly see, God here is talking about murder. And what does he say? For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. Now, who's the I? The I there is clearly God, the Lord. And you'll notice it's required of both animals and humans. That's what he he, means when he says, from every beast I will require, and from man. If a person, if an animal, takes the life of another human, that person, that animal, deserves to die. He's guilty. And you'll notice, how is this judgment to be metered out? Will God just like strike the murderer dead with lightning? Is it some sort of miraculous judgment? No, look at what it says in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's what it envisions. It envisions when a murder has taken place, the society comes together. And this would eventually evolve into the state. But the society comes together. They're to examine the facts, examine the details, make a just judgment. And then if it's found that a murder has been committed, the murderer is to be executed. Is that a fair reading of the passage? And consider with me the way in which this is the very first law proclaimed for all humanity for all time. Uh, The command to be fruitful and multiply, it seems to be, primarily for Noah and his sons. But when the time comes to publish this timeless moral law... What is it? Murder is wrong. Murder is a sin. Now, believe it or not, but we actually need to clarify what murder is. Uh, oddly enough, there's an enormous amount of misunderstanding here, including among professing Christians, as to what constitutes murder. So what is murder? Much of the confusion here goes back to the way in which the King James Version translates the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? If you memorize the Ten Commandments in the King James Version, or if you went and looked this up in the King James Version, Exodus 20.13 says this, Thou shalt not kill. And this is the way a lot of people think the Ten Commandments read, Thou shalt not kill. And because of that, they've used the Bible to argue for all sorts of things that God does not require. For example, many use the command, Thou shalt not kill, to argue for why the death penalty is wrong. It doesn't matter who it is, even if he's the worst you know, mass murderer, genocidal maniac that you could imagine, thou shalt not kill, therefore you never use the death penalty. Anybody heard the Bible used that way before? Others misuse the thou shalt not kill to argue for complete pacifism. Why, nations should never go to war under any circumstances whatsoever. Even if something like the bombing of Pearl Harbor were to happen again, we should never go to defend ourselves because thou shalt not kill. I- ever hear anybody argue that way? And lastly, and I've heard people say this to me personally, thou shalt not kill. They've used it to argue for why we shouldn't kill animals and, and eat animals. Uh, why hunting and you know, eating a hamburger is wrong. Uh, you, people, you hear people talk this way, you know, meat is murder, the cow is my brother, that sort of thing. And oftentimes it goes back to this idea, thou shalt not kill. Anybody ever heard the Bible used that way? Well, what we need to understand is that this prohibition against murder, it has nothing to do with forbidding capital punishment. It has nothing to do with pacifism, and it has nothing to do with animal rights. In general, I think the King James Bible is a good, trustworthy translation. But this is one point where they really got it wrong. No, Exodus 20:13 should definitely be translated "You shall not murder." That's what it says in the original Hebrew. And more than that, all the things that is mentioned that "Thou shalt not murder" is used or "kill" is used to defend are permitted or encouraged at other parts of the Bible. So, for example, the death penalty is obviously prescribed. Look at verse 6, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, here's something fascinating to realize. The only command repeated in all five books of the Pentateuch is the command to execute murderers. Did you know that? First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the only command repeated in all five, murderers are to be executed. The command to put murderers to death, it's stressed emphatically in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like we read in Romans 13:4. This was part of our scripture reading. This is talking about secular government. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, why has God entrusted the sword to secular government? I mean, is that just to, like, intimidate people? I mean, why, why, why would someone have a sword if it's not to use it? He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, sometimes people think in regard to the death penalty, but maybe what if we get it wrong? What if we make a mistake and accidentally execute somebody who's innocent? Since mistakes happen, since we might execute somebody unjustly, let's let's just do away with the entire concept uh, since mistakes happen. Now, realize that if you're thinking that, that is not an objection that God did not not anticipate. You know, it's not something that took God by surprise. Now, you think about it, who's the central character of the entire Bible? Jesus, Jesus the eternal son of God, and Jesus was unjustly executed. He's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And even Jesus himself who knew he was going to be unjustly executed said this in Matthew 26:54, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So I think we can say definitively that governments today ought to employ the death penalty in righteously punishing serious criminals. And we're seeing in our society today the sociological consequences if we refuse to do that. Well, coming back to a couple of other things murder is not. Obviously, going to war for a righteous cause is not murder. I mean, just read about the wars that Abraham or Joshua or David or Josiah waged, and you'd never conclude that all going to war for righteous causes is prohibited. And if you're, say, a soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, you might one day be called upon to kill in a righteous war. And while that's certainly unfortunate and sad, don't feel guilty over that. That's your calling. And certainly eating animals is permitted in the Bible. While we should certainly be kind to animals, take care of our animals, eating a hamburger, eating a hot dog is not sinful. Eating bacon is definitely not sinful. Look at Genesis 9 two. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. Evidently, up to this point in human history, humans were primarily vegetarian. But now in light of the changes brought up by the flood, now meat is not only permissible to eat, but blessed by God and something that you can give him thanks for. We'll see that a lot more in the temple sacrificial system, where animals are killed left and right, but the priests then eat a lot of the meat that was sacrificed. Well, what then is murder? Biblically, biblically speaking, how should we define it? I think we just define murder this way. Murder is the intentional taking of an innocent human life. It's the intentional taking of an innocent human life, and obviously by innocent, we don't mean sinless. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Instead, they're innocent only in the sense that they're not, say, a dangerous criminal or an enemy combatant on the battlefield. To intentionally take the life of such an innocent person, that is murder. And that, that's what God's talking about in Genesis 9. Now, something that's so important to emphasize is why is murder wrong? Why? Most people never really think much about this. Take another look at Genesis 9. And look at verse 6. And look at the reason why murder is wrong. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. You see that, what's the reason? Why is murder murder and not just hunting? It's because you, it's because I, we've been made in the image of God. Now realize something that is really quite important here. What God says to Noah is said hundreds of years after the fall hundreds of years after the fall, sometimes people get this idea that, yes, we were made in God's image, but when Adam and Eve sinned, that image was erased, totally eradicated. It's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, the image of God was damaged, but it was not eradicated. We're still made in the image of God, and therefore to take the life of another human being is to do damage to the image of God. Now, I really want to emphasize this because at the end of the day, our creation in the image of God is really the only reason why murder is wrong. You take this away and everything collapses. I've come to believe that our creation in the image of God, this is maybe one of the top ten, maybe top five most important doctrines in the entire Bible. Far more important than end times, details, far more important than how often we should eat the Lord's Supper or how old somebody needs to be before they're baptized. People made in the image of God is so vital. If we go back to Genesis one twenty six, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see, unlike animals, you and I, we've been made in the image of God. What that means is that we have capacities that are like God. We reflect God. And this is, realize, universal. Regardless of somebody's nationality, ethnicity, age, weight, height, uh, mental capacity, or lack thereof, all humans are made in the image of God. Now, it's this fact that we're made in the image of God that gives us a derived dignity. It sets us apart from animals. We have a special worth in God's sight. It's really not inherent in me because I'm so great. It's because I reflect God and His character. God is the sun, I am the moon. This is what David meant when he sang in Psalm 8, 4. This was part of our call to worship this morning. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, something that's very important to emphasize, and I've received questions about this. Realize that there's no sense in the Bible that some people are more in the image of God than others. It's not a quantitative thing in that sense. You're just as much in the image of God as I am. A a six-month-old child or a pre-born child is just as much in the image of God as a 50-year-old adult. Men and women, boys and girls, tall, skinny, short, fat, black and yellow, red and white, were all equally made in the image of God and therefore of equal dignity and worth. And realize this is true also for those who might be disabled or handicapped or deformed. Regardless of their emotional state, physical state, regardless of their mental capacity or lack thereof, If they're human beings, they're made in the image of God, and therefore you treat them with the honor and the dignity due to the image of God. Really, at the end of the day, you love your neighbor, not because your neighbor is so great, but because they're made in the image of a God who is so great. But again, you lose all of this when you lose our creation in the image of God. You lose any and all basis for treating people with dignity and respect. And again, we're seeing that in our society. As we lose these biblical categories, we really are degenerating into something approximating hell on earth. I want to share with you a couple of very bizarre quotes to illustrate this. And these are not quotes that you should agree with or or believe, uh, but they're illustrating the way in which when you lose the image of God, everything starts collapsing. Ingrid Newkirk, founder of the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. You ever heard of PETA? She once famously said this, There is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. That's where it goes when you lose the image of God. Here's an even worse one. Mr. Les Knight says this, If you haven't given voluntary human extinction much thought before, the idea of a world with no people in it may seem strange. But if you give it a chance, I think you might agree that the extinction of Homo sapiens, that's people, Uh, would mean the survival of millions, if not billions, of earth-dwelling species. Phasing out the human race would solve every problem on earth, social and environmental. Again, that's where you go when you lose humanity made in the image of God. We become nothing more than big cockroaches. And if you'd eliminate bothersome cockroaches from your kitchen, why not eliminate bothersome people? This, incidentally, is why Darwinian evolution is really quite evil. Darwinian evolution, it teaches us that we're really just advanced apes that somehow wound up with bigger brains. And a lot of people think, you know, that's really strange, but who cares? Realize that when you go that direction, you're losing humanity created in the image of God. And when you lose that, everything becomes permissible. And I say it again, at the end of the day, our creation in the image of God is the only reason why murder is wrong. Well, let's see if we can get specific here, practical here. What would murder include today? How do we murder today? Let me give you a few instances of this. This would obviously include what's called first degree murder. First degree murder. Premeditated murder. Where you plot and scheme and then carry out this plan to take somebody's life. It's like Cain did, or pardon me, no, like King David did, if you think about it. Um, First degree murder. Sinful. Offensive in God's sight, and yet it happens on a regular basis when you read the news. More than that, this would also include second degree murder. Killing an innocent person but doing it sort of impulsively, suddenly, Uh, you know, maybe you just get in this heated argument and in a a rage and you start punching one another and you go too far and you kill a person. That too is murder. And if you're guilty of doing that, you are a murderer in God's sight. We should also say that the Bible would consider it murder when a death has occurred due to gross negligence or carelessness. Now, this is the sort of situation where somebody gets drunk and gets behind the wheel. Uh, they get high on drugs and, you know, get behind a forklift or that sort of thing. Additionally, say I've got this boat that's totally not seaworthy, and I know it. I know better, but I sell it to somebody anyway, and they end up drowning on it. Uh, that seems to be also an example of murder. We get this from Scripture from Exodus 21:28. Listen to this. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner put to death. Do you follow that? Uh, The difference there is if you know your ox is a dangerous killer, but you don't do anything to restrain it, you're in a sense an accomplice to to the death. Therefore, due to gross negligence, you are complicit. And this is why Christians have historically said that killing somebody through something like drunk driving, even though you may not have set out to kill somebody, is a form of murder nonetheless. Now, up to this point, you might be thinking, "Wow, I am glad I've never committed any of those forms of murder. That must be pretty righteous. Well, the Bible would go on to include far more than just that as murder. Let me give you a few more ex- examples. And realize these, what I'm going to talk about now, they're, they're actually legalized forms of murder. Uh, things that are totally fine in our law codes, and yet Almighty God would consider them expressions of murder. What am I talking about? Well, first on the list would be abortion. Abortion is completely legal. It's completely murder. What is abortion? Abortion is the intentional termination of a preborn infant in the mother's womb. We're not talking about miscarriage or something else like that. But this preborn infant, it's made in the image of God. Therefore, to take the life of that infant is to take the life of an image bearer and therefore to commit murder. Does that follow? Because the Bible is explicit here, there can be no compromise. Our culture wants to look at abortion as really just the elimination of unnecessary tissue. But how does the Bible look at the baby developing in the mother's womb? Listen to Psalm 139, 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. If we're going to take the Bible seriously at all, we must believe that the preborn infant is a human, possessing all the rights, all the dignity of a human made in the image of God. Therefore, to terminate that life intentionally is to take the life of a preborn human, which is murder. And since Roe v. Wade, over 60 million babies have been murdered in America. Never diminish the evil of abortion. Never lessen the heinousness of abortion. It is, in a sense, murder of the worst kind. You know, the, people, the very people that ought to be most caring for this baby are taking its life. Now, is there forgiveness available for those who have committed abortions? Of course. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And if you repent, you too can be forgiven. But let us never, never diminish the evil of abortion. Now, if you want to explore that entire topic more, a book we keep on our table just as a regular basis is called Why Pro-Life by Randy Elkhorn. If you want to read this more, explore this far more than I could go into in this particular sermon, go get yourself a copy of that book, Why Pro-Life by Randy Elkhorn. I think you'll find it helpful. Quickly, another form of legalized murder thankfully not as widely practiced as abortion, but it is a form of murder nonetheless, euthanasia. Euthanasia. Euthanasia is currently legal in several foreign countries. It's legal in a few of our states. It's increasingly becoming popular and accepted, and I imagine that in my lifetime it will probably become nationwide. But the Bible would contend that nonetheless euthanasia is a form of murder. Now, what do we mean by euthanasia? We well, have got to be careful here. Uh, We don't merely mean, say, pulling the plug uh, or, you know, allowing somebody to expire when they could be given drugs to keep them alive. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, We're talking about intentionally causing death uh, through the prescription of drugs or sometimes, like Terry Schiavo's case, by literally starving the person to death. Euthanasia is sometimes called mercy killing, mercy killing. And the idea is that it's more merciful to take this person's life than to let them to continue to exist in their physical or emotional pain. Now, in the case of euthanasia, we must again say that it is murder because the life of an innocent person is taken. Again, we're not talking about just shutting off a respirator or pulling the plug. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about intentionally causing death. And just like the infant in the womb of the mother is a human life, so also a person. Even if they're in incredible emotional agony, physical pain, they are still in the image of God. And therefore, to cause that person's death is to murder. Realize at the end of the day, our worth does not come from our perceived quality of life. The entire argument is built on that idea, that our worth comes from our perceived quality of life. That's not the way the Bible looks at it at all. Our worth comes from our reflection of the image of God. Now, that's all I'm going to say on this topic. I recognize this is a hot topic, many contingencies, many questions. If you'd like to do more thinking on this topic of euthanasia, I actually preached an entire sermon on euthanasia back in March of 2010. So get on our website, go to the sermon, March 14, 2010. Talk about a lot of contingencies, a lot of ideas, if you want to think about this more. Um, but I stand by my contention that euthanasia is a form of murder. Another form of murder that we're tempted to commit, but again, it's not often considered murder, Suicide. And I want to speak very carefully here because I know, I know people in this congregation have struggled with suicidal thoughts and ideation. But we ought to view it in the same category as murder. Now, again, it's very important to properly define suicide. It's not merely doing something that results in you getting killed. Now, if you jump out of a plane and happen to forget your parachute, uh, that's not suicide. So, also, if a soldier jumps on grenades to protect his friends, that's not suicide, that's honorable. What is suicide? Well, I would say suicide is doing something intentionally uh, to to kill yourself because you don't think there's any other hope. Uh, No hope for improvement, no hope for anything getting better. Because of that, you do something to intentionally take your life. It's taking life as an end in itself. That is suicide. And we've got to say that just like abortion, just like euthanasia, suicide needs to be held in the same category as murder. And here's the reason why. Remember, the reason why murder is wrong is because it does damage to the image of God, right? Now, I am in the image of God. Therefore, if I kill myself intentionally, I am damaging the image of God in me. Therefore, it's a form of murder. I read a lot of old biographies in church history, and it's interesting that uh, this term suicide, it wasn't used by Christians, say, 200, 300 years ago. The idea was there. People have been taking their own lives for hundreds of years, but they didn't call it suicide 200, 300 years ago. You know what they called it? Yeah, they called it self-murder. Self-murder. And again, they called it that because they understood that any time the image of God is unjustly destroyed, whether by somebody else or by myself, it's a form of murder. Now, again, I realize that suicide is a very touchy and emotional topic, and, and we don't want to hurt those who struggle in this area. If you want to explore this more, there's a little booklet on the literature table there in the foyer. There are 13 Reasons Why You Shouldn't Take Your Life. It's kind of playing off that Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, but it's 13 Reasons Why You Shouldn't Commit Suicide. So, again, if this is a struggle for you, read that little booklet, and additionally, please talk to me, talk to somebody you trust. Uh, so long as there is a God, there is hope. And you don't need to look at suicide as your only way out. So abortion, euthanasia, suicide, they are legal, and yet they are murder. And if we believe the Bible to be the word of God, we must call them what they are. These are behaviors Christians should have nothing to do with. Well, here's one final way that we commit murder. Again, you may be thinking, man, I'm, I'm pretty relieved. I haven't committed first or second degree murder. I haven't lent out a boat that wasn't seaworthy never got an abortion or done euthanasia or tried to commit suicide, that must be pretty good. Well, there's one more form of murder that we've got to deal with. And this is really the root of them all. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire saying essentially the same thing. Listen to 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, you may be thinking, you know, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, not like those murderers. Well, just ask yourself, have you ever been sinfully angry with somebody? Have you ever just, you know, cussed somebody out or at least thought about cussing them out? Have you ever been just enraged in your heart and felt like punching them in the face? Realize, if so, you are a murderer at heart. I am a murderer at heart. In your heart, in my heart, dwell all the seeds of all the sins that we've talked about today. First degree murder, second degree murder, abortion, euthanasia, they're all there. In other, other circumstances, we would have committed those sins were it not for the grace of God. See, at the end of the day, all of us are murderers, just of varying degrees and severities. No one is righteous. No, not one. All of us are guilty. All of us are sinful. All of us deserve the wrath of God for our murderous hearts. And yet, in conclusion, here's the final thought I want to leave you with How can murderers be forgiven? Ever wonder about that? Christianity, the Bible is all about forgiveness. How, then, can murderers be forgiven? Realize, as evil as murder is, as inexcusable as murder is, I find it fascinating that at least two of our favorite Bible heroes were murderers. Who am I talking about? Well, first there's Moses. Before Moses became the leader of the people of Israel, he obviously grew up in Egypt. And this incident happened where he killed this Egyptian and it forced him to flee. And the text is pretty clear that it was an expression of murder. But not only Moses, there was David. We've been studying him in Wednesday night Bible study. You might want to come on out for those studies. But in his case, his murder was premeditated. First degree murder. Remember, he first committed adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant, and then in an attempt to hide that, he has her husband snuffed out. And in the process, several other Israelites are killed, too. Kind of collateral damage. So Moses and David, both shameless murderers, fully deserving of the wrath of God. And yet both completely forgiven and washed by the blood of Jesus. They are both in heaven today. And get this, if you're a Christian, you're going to spend eternity with at least a couple of forgiven murderers. How does that make you feel? Now, it's highly likely that somebody here has committed murder. Yes, we've all committed murder in our hearts, been angry. uh, But more of a physical, literal type of murder. Maybe somebody online has been guilty of murder. If so, realize that like Moses, like David, forgiveness is available if you'll, but return, if you'll turn to Jesus in repentant faith. The Bible tells us that God is the loving creator of the world. Made absolutely everything. All the stars and planets and water and clouds. He made absolutely everything. And he made you in his image. Intelligently designed you to have a relationship with him. That's an amazing truth. I love that truth. We were made for a relationship with God. But the Bible goes on to tell us that we have sinned and separated ourselves from God. We've broken God's laws thousands of times, murder just being one of myriads. Most of the time our disobedience doesn't even phase us. We hardly even think about it. And yet by breaking God's laws, we find ourselves guilty and condemned in his sight. And yet under these very circumstances, God our creator, he loved us. He loved the humans that he made, who chose darkness rather than light, who chose murder rather than love. He loved us and he acted that we might be reconciled to him. Almighty God took on flesh. He was born as a baby and given the name Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he grew up and lived the perfect life you and I should have lived. The life God commands us to live, but we fail to live. Jesus lived that for us. But then Jesus died on the cross, and get this, he was murdered. He was murdered, unjustly executed. But what the Bible teaches is that as he's dying on the cross, he's absorbing the wrath of God in our place. He's taking the very judgment that I deserve for my sins as he's dying on the cross, as my substitute. And he bears it completely, fully, so that there's nothing left for me to endure. Three days after his death, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead, demonstrating that our hope is not in vain. And now in response, he's calling you. He's calling you, repent, turn from your sins, embrace the Lord Jesus, and be forgiven. Turn from your sins. Stop stop running from God. Stop trying to live your own way. Turn to Jesus. Rely on him, his death and resurrection, and be forgiven of all your sins, including murder. Be made right with God forever. And in conclusion, this is what I beg you to do right now. If you've never trusted in Jesus with the kind of saving faith that I've been describing, do it right now. In your heart, turn Let go of your sin. I mean, has it done you any good? Let go of your sin. Rely on what Jesus has done. Come to the Father through Him. Be saved today. Without a doubt, murder is one of the greatest sins conceivable. And yet the blood of Jesus is even greater, even more powerful than murder. And every sin can be forgiven for those who repent, including murder. So come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, in clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. i will be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, and today be forgiven of all of your sins, including murder. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear, how applicable, how convicting, how life-giving it is. Lord, you've given us such a treasure in your word. Lord, we do confess to you our expressions of murder, uh, maybe taking somebody's life, maybe abortion, maybe contemplating suicide, certainly having angry, hateful thoughts in our hearts. We're all guilty. But we do praise you that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, and he is our hope. In his name we pray. Amen.